a word from our sponsor. I'm Rusty Keeley. I'm the CEO of the Keeley Companies. My dad, Larry Keeley, started the business, and we're really able to take his entrepreneurial spirit, his commitment to family, and we're able to take that platform and grow it. We didn't lose customers. We just kept adding to customers because we did quality work and we took care of our people. When somebody takes something and makes a success, oh, something you started, it's uh, very special. Our people are special because of, of how much they care about what it is that they do. I've been here for 23 years, uh, started in 96 with a shovel in my hand. We have some of the most incredible people around. Innovators, we have thinkers. You know, we just have people that are passionate about life. The people that make up Keeley are everything good. The people first culture that has led to their amazing success and growth is exactly why we are honored to have them as our partners. Learn more about our partners and friends at their website. It is at KeeleyCompanies.com. One more time, KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We have the honor week after week, episode after episode, of bringing you remarkable guests speaking not only about their life, which is awesome. If it ends there, it's awesome but also about your life, not only about their adversity and how they overcame, but even more brilliantly and beautifully about your life, about your adversity, about how you can overcome and about the steps, the tools and the techniques that you can utilize to ensure that your best days are in front of you. Today is no different. We've got an amazing gentleman on the call with us today. His name is Richard Louie. Richard Louie is a celebrity. He's a business success story. He's a life success story. He's overcome some hardship and adversity in his own life. And yet his most recent book, it's called Enough About Me. Well, in the very title of that, it allows you and maybe suggests that this book and indeed this episode today is not about Richard Louis. It's not so much about what he has achieved professionally or financially or the vanity numbers on social media. It's about the reason why he left that all behind. Richard left his career to join a career that 54 million Americans have embraced, becoming a caregiver to a family member. As our parents and grandparents age, as family members and loved ones become ill, as neighbors become unable to take care of themselves, as children go through unexpected challenges and difficulties in their lives, more than 54 million Americans have embraced and taken on a job that they do not get paid for. They received, in all likelihood, no training for. It comes with long hours. It's oftentimes difficult physically and emotionally. They are the caregivers for their loved ones. And Richard has chosen this career path in his own journey going forward. My friends, this episode, I believe, affects us all. We all know someone in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhood that is serving as a caregiver. Richard's going to unpack some of the challenges that they face, some of the difficulties that are part of their days, but also some of the blessings that come through 
this adversity. You're going to love his story. You're going to love his mother and father. And I believe by the end of this, end of this episode, you're going to recognize that in spite of the many challenges you, your family, the one that you are currently caring for may face, that the foundation is firm, that altruism wins, and that the best days do indeed remain in front of us. So today, my encouragement for all of us is to sit back, grab a nice tall cup of coffee or something else that you want to sip on during this interview. You're going to love it. Get ready to take some notes as I introduce you to my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Richard Louie. Richard, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for doing this and thank you for always having great programming on these topics. Well, they're worthy topics. And sometimes we talk about people who climb mountains. And sometimes we talk about people who have helped others climb mountains. Today, we speak to a person who does both. So I, I just think it's a really, <laughs> really, man, I think it's just so amazing what you've done in your life and what you're currently doing in your life and how you're helping others navigate the journey forward, whether it's for them or for others. When you bump into someone who has not yet read the book, or they may not have seen you on network television, and they say, hey, Richard, what do you do for a living, man? What is your job? How do you respond to that? I tell them uh, I'm a journalist uh, and I work for MSNBC and NBC News. Uh, I do my job in a way that is uh, nonpartisan and uh, only partisan when it comes to trying to get the truth and facts. And um, I feel really honored to be able to have done this for the last 15 years. So that's what you've been doing for the last 15 years. I'm going to back the train up even farther than that. <laughs> in reading your book and in, in hearing your heart around this, part of what makes you who you are today are your parents. It was the upbringing that they instilled into you. So let's go all the way back to childhood. Where were you born and raised? Gary Boulevard in San Francisco, California uh, at Kaiser Permanente. What <laughs> <laughs> was the bed number and the bracelet ID, man? I mean, let's get into Exactly. <laughs> The funny story about that one, John, is was I came two weeks late, and uh, I talk about in the book, as you know, uh, about what the doctor says. He comes running out to my dad, who you know probably has these sweat-soaked cigars in his hand because it's been so long, and he says, "You got a sumo wrestler," and I joke, as you know, in the book about that. That I'm saying at that point, gee whiz, I'm I'm only like an hour old, and I already got to deal with these things that uh, about race because I'm Chinese, not Japanese, and sumos sumerosas are Japanese. I joke about that stuff because you know it's an important it's an important part of my narrative. You know, so it's a it, not only is it an important part of your narrative. I believe if you weren't able to poke the bear a little bit as you journeyed through the book, because it's a it is a heavy book and it's a heavy topic in so many regards. But I found myself not only wiping my tears from time to time, thinking about you, thinking about your father, thinking mm. about your mother and all the 54 million others who are on a similar journey today. Mm. But seeing the way that you were able to laugh during the, the difficult times along your journey. And I would imagine part of that was upbringing your, your mom and dad. They, you know, you, you told it beautifully in the book. I'll let you tell it for yourself here. But talk about your mom first. Yeah, you know, my mom, um, she was the youngest daughter in her family which meant in that case, she had to clean and cook and work at the corner store. And, and then at night is the only time she could study. I was wondering why she was a night owl. And it's because it was, it was 11 or 12 o'clock when she finally had her time to do things for herself. And 
that is the way she has lived her entire life in, you know, uh, you know, she started singing at a church in Southern California as a, as a teen. I think in her family, she was the only one that was doing that. Her mother was uh, a Christian as well. And um, they're both named Rose. Uh, and she, she loves to tell the story of when Shirley Temple Black showed up next to her at in choir practice. And, I, and, and my mom was younger. I can't even imagine if, if that, how that looked because here's my mom looking up at Shirley Temple. And Shirley Temple's not that tall, you know. But uh, that followed her throughout her entire life. If people ask about my mom, I would just say she's absolutely a selfless person. And the, one of the ways that she celebrates that existence is through music. And that's why I bring up Shirley Temple Black, because she, you know, she's playing the violin now. She started it six, seven years ago, um, but she had to put it aside when she started taking care of my dad for two years. And for her to put aside her music said a lot to me, which we can get into later, is that she was giving a lot of herself yes. to care for my, my father. Um, but that has always been her way. It, it you wrote about that. You wrote about her as a school teacher having an opportunity to become an assistant principal That's and, right. and a principal and climb right. the ladder, man. And yet this lady decided to remain in the seat where she could serve. And not only that, but serve yeah. the rest among us. That you're right. She the the folks say, Hey Rose, you're doing really I mean, we're starting out and she's doing better, like in her thirties and forties, like Rose, you're doing really well. Would you like a, a you know, a vice principal or we'll move you to the you know better school or whatever? And she was like no. And I could see my mom saying just, no, that's okay. Uh, but she did it because she, even her last school before she retired, she asked to be at the most difficult school in the district, meaning lowest scores and the, the most concern about uh, safety. And um, I knew why, because she, I knew she was a great teacher, but she wanted to bring her ability to the places that most needed it. Uh, she doesn't, and then that that comfort, if you will, with discomfort, or her discomfort was her comfort, right, uh, is what she brought home uh, to us. Uh, in that, you know, you got to run towards the fire. That's basically what I saw: run towards the fire, and it's not going to be easy. As a, as a child, did you understand that mom was choosing to to lay down her life for these children? I thought she was, you know, as a child, you're kind of like, why are you doing it? On the flip side, you're like, okay, I get it, right? Because she never preached on it, by the way, John. She she just did it. Didn't say you had to do the same thing. But when we'd ask her, she wouldn't even say, oh, it's because I need to give back. This is an important value that I grew up with. And that was not the answer. Mm -hmm. The answer was, because that's what I want to do. I think that's the right thing to do. That was it. So that's it. She's also married to a pastor slash social worker named, yeah. you call him Papa. Is that correct? Uh, Baba. Baba. Yeah. yeah. It's the only Chinese word. And, and even those who speak uh, any Asian language, when they hear me say that, I'm not even saying it the right way. I, I don't even, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's also uh, it, the equivalent in English. I learned only within the last five years is like saying uh, daddy. Yeah. And so we've been calling my dad, daddy in Chinese. And it's the only word we, we use, like, cause we were raised uh, speaking English uh, full and full. And so when, when we're out in public, we didn't realize that we're calling him a Chinese word until, you know, in our teens, we had no idea. We thought it was an English word. So Baba, 
Talk yeah. about daddy. Talk about the daddy that you knew and loved growing up. So uh, daddy or Baba was a very imperfect person. And um, he, you know, he wanted to be a youth, a pastor. He went to Fuller Seminary in Southern California. That's when he went to True Light Presbyterian and met my mom. And I'm sure my mom looked at my dad and went, ooh, look at that. That is a Asian man who is a pastor. And that's like uh, winning the lottery back in the 50s, right? Uh, I, and so my dad, he went to Fuller and I remember seeing the graduation picture. He was uh, 400 folks. I think there were like two or three folks that looked like him. Right. And uh, I went back to Fuller uh, to check it out. And it is a really special place that they first started dating. But my dad, you know, really couldn't support the family being a youth pastor after he, he finished seminary. He tried his darndest. It didn't work out. And so he became a social worker, the next highest paying job to take care of four children. Um, and um, also no stress at all because he was a general a GA, general admittance, I think is what it means. Mm. So anybody coming off the street who needed help, you sat down with folks like my dad. And that was very stressful for him. He could not, he, it was tougher. And when he came home, John, you could feel the, you know what I mean? There's some people that can handle that. Like my mom would be a good social worker. Yes. She could hear the most difficult stories in the world, give you, give you hope and energy and, and care for you and come home and still be living that, not putting it in a corner, but still living family. My dad couldn't do that. That began the uh, realization of my dad was imperfect um, to me, at least. And that was okay. It, in the beginning, a little weird as a teenager, right? Dad's, and then he got struck by one of his clients that really, and my dad was open about the sadness that he felt and the, and the depression he went through. He was very open with it. Um, and again, and when you're younger and you see that in your parents, it's a little weird. Yeah. But as I got older, I realized that vulnerability that he expressed to me is a lot what John, I'm trying to practice today. And, and in the book, why it's called enough about me. Why am I talking about me? Why am I talking about my family? <laughs> and it's because it, it's with the idea that when we're selfless, we are also vulnerable because I'm I'm really kind of putting my neck out a little bit by sharing these things and, and folks might just say well I don't need to hear about that that's that's not applicable that's kind of my dad and when when I read the book candidly I, I assumed it would be story after story of your father and mother and you and your siblings and your career and the, the journey forward and backward and of course you mixed that in but my gosh you layered it with research and with individuals that you bumped into in the community that in one way or another, sometimes massive, other times just minor little inflection points, all of them changing your life and building about clarity yeah. ultimately around what really matters. So yeah. as we talk about imperfect fathers, and I'm certainly one of them, as we oh, talk about imperfect events <laughs> in your life, uh, you have an experience as a child where you're made fun of. And I think it's a a turning point for you in some regards, but it's going to become a uh, an inflection point, bringing you back to your dad later on. You're made fun of for your heritage. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, that. in the schoolyard, um, you know, there's Richard, the Asian kid, being made fun of, and I come home and I, I tell my dad, you know, they're they're starting to push me around physically, and and um, you know, it's it's by bedtime. He's coming to tuck me in. I remember the conversation. I'm looking up at him, and he goes, "Well, Richard." Um, 
what would you like to do? Um, would you like to defend yourself? Would you like to let it be? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, why, why do I have to do that? And he said, well, you think about it. And then the next day or so he comes back to have you made a decision? Have you thought about it? And uh, I said, well, yeah, I guess I should probably try to defend myself. And he said, I got a solution for you. Um, there is a Shaolin temple uh, Kung Fu monk that I met through somebody at church. And <laughs> I am going, I'm being called the Kung Fu kid, dad. I mean, you're going to have me learn it's Kung Fu. Course, dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is this, is this a joke, right? Is this a, is there a punchline in here somewhere? Uh, but in all reality and in honesty, it was, it was the best thing that, cause it was during the after halo effect of Bruce Lee. So here I was learning stuff that I could, uh, I could, you know, the, the sort of defensive moves of breaking arms and legs and things like that, which I never did, but that empowered me to feel like I needed, uh, I could defend myself this little, you know, three foot, four foot mini Bruce Lee. And. I, I say in the book, you know, he taught me how to defend myself, how to fight for myself. And that now when he was, uh, you know, going through Alzheimer's and he could no longer fight for himself, that I was going to fight for him. And, and sure enough, that's what we were doing when we were in the hospital or when he needed care. He taught me how to fight. So now I'm, I'm going to fight for him. And that certainly is uh, what I try to do um when he was diagnosed and, and as he went through those great journeys you have a way with words i would imagine you already know that from your profession but i thought that was an awesome end to chapter one mm -hmm. this is daddy baba who taught you to fight and fought yeah. for you now you are giving up your life in some regards fighting for him so let's talk about the life that you're surrendering for a while so that you may fight for him you eventually leave the temple, you leave karate club, you leave everything else you're, you're learning. What yeah. was your major in college? My major? Uh, well, I got to tell you, and you know this because you read the book, uh, Cookie College was my first college. <laughs> you, by the way, you have the most unusual biography, car salesman, <laughs> cookie maker, you know, on yeah. and on and on. So yes. Yes, I... I, I I barely graduated high school. Um, I got kicked out of my first high school, went to my second. I almost flunked twice. I did not want to go to college. So I worked at Mrs. I worked in fast food with Mrs. Fields for about four or five years. And my first college was Cookie College. It was called Cookie College, John. It, we went to Park City, Utah. We learned how to make better cookies. We also learned how to be better managers. And um, that Cookie College experience, was extremely formative of the way I think about organizations yeah. and management. And people will think, wow, really? I said, yes, because I really enjoyed it. You know, um, I finally realized uh, four or five years after that I couldn't work in fast food and I lost interest. They were fired me. It was the best thing that happened. I, you know, I went from basically uh, one of Debbie's favorites, she used to come to visit me at her store and hug me. And here I'm the Asian guy like, hey, no, no, no physical stuff here, please don't hug me. You know, it was, it was always very strange. And I would tell my friends, Debbie's the sweetest person, but she always wants to hug because I, I moved the store from number 10 out of 500 stores to number one in sales. And so she always was very affectionate that way. And I was like, whoa. Um, but it's all those things that brought me to the point that realized I couldn't be doing that for a long time. So that's when I went to City College of San Francisco. 
Mm -hmm. I, and, and that's where I learned, uh, I took my speech class. I joined the speech team. Um, and, and that kind of started this journey that, you know, ended up later on as, as broadcast journalism. Yes. Did you always have the, the cadence and the, the, the booming voice to carry you into these days or was that trained into you? Yeah, no, it, it, uh, it wasn't, it was trained into me. It was, um, people that believed in me. I think I was in, I was in community college at the time. And one of my mentors said, you know, your, your voice is good. And I was like, really? And, and why, you know, I was in my twenties at that time and I didn't think twice of it. And, but I tried to work on it during the speech classes and then it, it, it kept on. And then I left and I went to business into the small startups and then I went to business school and then it came back again where I had good coaches. Um, my latest coach, Robert Dembo over at NBC, um, got into the, the, the booth with me because he was in my ear when I was tracking something. And he was like, Richard, uh, try this. Okay. And I tried, nope, he got in my ear again. That's not it. Try this. That's not, they said, then he got in my ear the third time said, you stay there. I'm going to come to the booth. The booth is only like two by two, three by three. He's standing next to me. He's going, Richard. And he pulls off his glasses and, you know, he's been around the block and his dad worked at NBC too. And he goes, Richard, um, there's a time like a, like an instrument where your voice will start to vibrate the resonance point. So, and that, that right there, he said, stay there when you're getting that sort of like, uh, stay in that range and, and go there and bring the energy into that space. And uh, I was like, well, I've already done five years at CNN. I thought I got the tracking thing down. I did not. And that was, that was informative to your question, John, in that I, I keep on learning. Let's take it back a little bit before CNN. What was your first job in media? Uh, my first job in media, well, I don't, I don't know if you call it a job, but I was, um, I was at church camp and uh, in, in high school, and uh, me and a buddy uh, decided, it was a family camp, and we were all packed together in cabins, two or three families per cabin, right? And uh, one night we're like, let's do a, let's do a newspaper, a newsletter, Yes. And it'll it'll be uh, uh, no byline. And so we would start around 11 p.m., work all night, cut and paste it, type it out, run over to the copy place at 6 a.m., take that legal size, two-sided, slip it underneath everybody's door at church camp. And it was called the Daily Bugle. And we did that for two or three years. That's my first job, if you will. And then I didn't touch news after that until I went to Berkeley because after City College, I then went to Berkeley for two years to finish it up. And I joined CalX there, which is a news radio station. And that's when I covered Rodney King. And that story was so little that I know, but now I do, so formative yeah. for me later on in my journalism career. Because, you know, after... Berkeley, I didn't go into journalism. I went into small business startups and environment and, and pneumatics and data and all different different stuff. 
But when I had to tell the story of Rodney King in the last six or seven years over and over again with different names, that was not something I thought I would be doing, but it was very important from my point of view to our viewers to express what we are seeing today, what we have seen, and why it is so painful for America to see that. Richard, we could go in a million directions on this. <laughs> yeah, we can. And I think since you brought up race and since they've heard the three letters that some of us are applauding and others right now are booing, those letters are CNN. My gosh, he worked there of all places or he worked there. Yes. Every single issue these days seems like a hot button issue that if you don't take a stand with me, you're against me recognizing that it is so divisive these days, how do you think we begin as families, as communities, as churchgoers, as people who've never worshiped, as people who lean left or right, who watch CNN or are repulsed by it, to begin coming together around the topics that, that need to be addressed, that need to be redeemed, and that actually can unify us to, so we can become, as they used to say, the better angels of ourselves. Yeah. You know, uh, like you, I'm I'm, I'm just a, a worker bee. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to put a, a brick one on top of the other. And, and you know, from, from the book, the first chapter is called Halftime. I very clearly lay out, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. I'm a reporter that's looking at a topic that's super important to me right now. Right. And that I, I approach it in a blue collar way for what some might call as a white collar issue. Um, and, I think that the way we can get around this sort of one or zero, and, and as you know, the book really pushes that we got to stop looking at ones and zeros, especially when it comes to values, because my father's a great example of that. A man who uh, absolutely uh, loved God and, and every morning and every night would give everything for it, but he was not good at it. <laughs> He was not good. You know, he wasn't the best preacher, nor was he, you know, the, the best sermon giver, the best writer, the best, the best speechifier, you know. But that example of his imperfection to me, uh, as I, I draw into other parts of um, society and life, and I think when we look at news as an example, we're not going to be perfect, but right. accept the fact that if we are journalists that we're going to try our darndest and that we're going to invest the most we can into getting it right and getting it right is not cheap so it is not cheap it is expensive and even to the point of it being expensive of life every year there are 60 to 70 journalists that are killed every year 60 to 70 and they know i know having uh so I've worked with the State Department over the last eight, nine years and the last two administrations um, as a speaker going abroad to talk about journalism. And every time I see these programs, I know they're looking to our high mountain here in the United States of, of free speech. Right. Um, and whenever there's a journalist around the world that dies, I cannot help but think they're thinking of us. And what we mean to the world when it comes to fighting for truth. And so I, I always think of that beauty that we've got in our constitution. And when they lose their lives, I know that we have a higher responsibility here then 
because we don't have to worry like they do. Their truth means losing their life. In my case, truth is not as expensive, if you will. But we, we have to know that when we're looking at CNN, which is a great journalistic organization, uh, NBC, CBS, ABC, also fantastic. And they work really hard at it. And we're not going to always get it right. Uh, but when we don't get it right, doesn't mean that you throw us out. You don't throw the baby with uh, the baby with the bathwater. So my father is that example of, oh, because he's not a great, perfect Christian, therefore he's just not going to be good overall. Correct. That was not at all, uh, you know, in the beginning I thought that way. Um, but now in my older years, just seeing how imperfect I am, my father is, and my, my mother too, and everybody, right. including Desmond Tutu and, 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 and Mother Teresa, they didn't get up every day and be that great idea of Mother Teresa. They weren't. But they were able to do some great things that really stood above uh, us normal folks, right? Um, so, yeah, I think the way we get around it is to, if we can see that. And one of the, the things that we do that was suggested in the book, you know, it's very much a, uh, an anti-self, self-help book. And self-help books tend to be very, you know, sort of down and hands-on and how do you get things done, right? And, and so one of those hands-on suggestions we make throughout the book with the research you're talking about is we dig into a, a, a study that Stanford did that's super simple. Yeah. And it, the, 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 the title of the chapter, Three Lunches, um, which is in chapter 11, um, is basically they show that, let's say you and I don't get along because of our ethnic background. And they, they looked at hundreds of that, those sorts of setups and they're blind setups. So you don't know who, and they met three times and the, the cortisol, which is a stress chemical, the dopamine and oxytocin, which are the happy chemicals in the body were the cortisol was high before and the dopamine and oxytocin low. We met three times for lunches or coffees or hanging out for longer periods of time, and the measurements went to just above zero. It showed that in terms of the indications of prejudice against each other. And if there's something that's more simple that we need to solve, it's it's that. Yeah. It's spend the time, and I say make a list of the three people you can never, ever think you would ever love to hang out with or you could see yourself hanging out with typically right? Who are those three people? And they go hang out with them, have the three lunches. And, and there's a lot of practical application to that, John, even in business, you, you might get a, a account executive or a salesperson that says, you know, that that lead is dead. That lead is dead. I can't get it. You know, my response would be, did you have three lunches or three coffees yet? So it works in journalism. It also works to connect with people who look, act, worship, feel about very important topics differently than you as a way to come together on other equally important issues and topics. So I, I love that chapter. I love your research up and down the book. It's really well thought through. The, the, I thought it, when you started talking about the word three, three matters not only for lunches, but also for plants. Yeah, right. Tell me, Richard, why you have three plants. Yeah, you know, uh, we've all had the friend uh, in our lifetime. They started dating somebody, um, and they, all of a sudden they forgot their friends, and then they broke up with that friend, uh, broke up with that person, and then all of a sudden they turn back and they, they're saying, "Hey, John, Richard, good to see you again." Right? Um, the idea of three plants is uh, let's not overfocus on one thing and forgetting the other things that make us whole. Um, 
go make your million first, John, or go make your billion, then give back, right? Not all of us can be Warren Buffett and do that um, or the Gates. So the three plants is the idea of you have a main plant, which might be your family or your career or your community, but you also have other plants to feed and they make you whole. So in my case, if it's my career, it's also the other plants community. The, the other plant is family potentially, right? And when one dies, jobs go away. If we've only planted, fed that one plant, guess what happens when that one dies? There's nothing in the garden. And if we, we need to, we need to feed the, maybe it's 80% of the water goes into the, the work plant and 10 in the other and 10 in the other. But what's great is that when that plant dies, which it always does, it always will, you have a garden to still go on and walk in. And those things help each other. We all know that it's, it's, it's intermingled. And that was so important for me personally, because I know there were periods in my life where I just gave everything to that one thing. Right. And then I turned around and where are my friends and family, for instance, those other two plants, where's my community work, the stuff that give, it turns out that, you know, the community work that I've been feeding for the last 10 years, based on that idea is what has given me so much in my ability to be a better journalist, especially when we talk about anti-Asian racism right now, like had I not invested in that community and me wanting to learn more about my background today, I would not be able to speak with you, John, about what this anti-Asian racism is and what it might mean. And I kept that plant slightly fed throughout my, my career. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, these podcasts run about an hour, each of the topics that you and I are going through requires a minimum of an hour to begin to step into it. So <laughs> I planned very poorly with Richard today. Uh, I, I think I want to hear, though, as we move through the professional journey, this plant that you've watered well into the personal one, this one that you are teaching us how we also can water extraordinarily well going forward. You read at CNN. It was the first time you read in front of them. You're on camera. <laughs> and then, you know, they go to commercials. So this is not actually aired out to what, 65 million households or whatever it was. That's it's right. people watching. Yeah. So then when they go to the fake commercials, uh, share with our listeners and our viewers what you were doing and, uh, and why yeah. that <laughs> This, this goes back to the plant idea. Like you got to recognize you got to be the same in the dark that you are when you think you're in the light. It's got to be, the, it's got to be the same yeah. in every space. Yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right, John. Um, yeah, it was, it was, so CNN uh, reached half a billion people internationally and I, I, I changed careers from business into, into journalism. Uh, it came back, the bug clearly had bitten me again. And so I was, I was working at a network in Asia because I was working with CNN, uh, Citibank in Asia. And I, when I left that business, I hopped over to this network and they were very kind to bring me in. But then I started the, the journey of wanting to be, you know, because I love Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw and Connie Chung and all these network anchors that you saw at Nightly News, right? And I wanted to be them. So I said, I really want to try to get to, to back to the States. So I was doing some interviews. The, the auditions are part of your interview. And I was at CNN. And so I'd flown from Singapore, landed. It was in the hotel in Atlanta, the big neon sign up there. And um, I, I'm a little tired. I go in 
the next morning, uh, they do the makeup thing and, uh, that's a whole other story, but they do the makeup thing and I'm, um, sitting in the desk, the CNN desk with, you know, this is what you see. So th what they do is they have two different desks. One desk is for some hours, another desk for another hour. So the, the empty desk for that hour, which is still the real desk, you, you sit there and you're, and they got the earpiece in. And the producer comes over and says, Richard, I'm going to be, I'm the producer. I'm going to be talking to you in the ear. Uh, we're going to just read the teleprompter. Okay. Okay, good. I'm going to go to the control room. She goes in the control room. I'm sitting there, you know, I'm getting ready. I'm already like really nervous. And, um, so I start, she says, okay, and cue go. So I'm reading the stories. Oh, no, no, this is in my brain. Like, this is easy. It's, oh yeah. Okay. Story one, story two, story three. And then we hit a sound bite. Right. And so somebody's talking. I don't have to do anything. She gets in my ear and she goes, Richard, at the end of the soundbite, I have to tell you something. There's a breaking news story. There's a plane that went down in Russia and I need you to kind of uh, summarize it. And these are the details. We don't know how many people are on it. It went down in the last two hours. It's in the northern part of Russia. And did you get that, Richard? And it's like, no, can you say it one more time? I'm writing it down. And I said, okay. And then she says, okay, you have th th 35 or 45 more seconds. I can't remember exactly before you have to go on air. Okay. That sound bites about got another 30 seconds. So I'm sitting there and this is where I'm like, I'm sweating and I'm, 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 and I don't have any tissue with me. So I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing papers and I'm going like this, you know, just trying to blot my face off. And, and I don't know about you and how you handle stress, John, but I'm, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, and I, I know I'm not on camera, right? So I'm not worried because it's not broadcasting in the audition, right? It's not it's not going out to air. No one knows. No, no one knows, right? Uh, and then one of the the tactics I'd learned it, it from my classes was you you start to to keep yourself calm. Is you know you can do these like bumblebee, bumblebee, bumblebee. You know, it just keeps you, you know, keeps you loose, keeps you loose. Um, and then they go, okay, 15 seconds, and I'm just you know grabbing the paper, blotting off again, and just trying to shake it off, you know, the way you shake your head. Right. Bumblebee, bumblebee. This is a long story, I'm sorry. And then what happens is uh, she goes, and cute. And I go, uh, we're just getting some breaking news into CNN. We have a, a, a plane down in Russia. We don't know the, the passenger count at the moment, but when we get, do get the details, uh, we will share that with you. But again, breaking news, a plane down in Russia. It is, we believe, a single aisle plane. Now back to the news. All right, so that that happens two times in this audition. They're trying to test to see how well I handle it. And what happens in the end is I don't get the job, not this time. And my I'm talking to my agent. My agent says, well, what'd you do? And I tell him what happened. He said, well, she tells me, well, Richard, they're actually not looking to see how you're reading when you're on, when you're reading the stories and what you're saying, you look calm and good. It's what you're doing off camera when you're doing the bumblebees, bumblebees and all that other crazy stuff. And I said, oh, then I look like an absolute weirdo. Uh, it's no wonder they did not hire me. And I tell that story in, in the book because the like my father, who, uh, you know, as a pastor, really wanted to continue at the church, you know, instead, because he had to be a social worker, he would say, you know, I'm I'm preaching in the streets. I'm preaching in my job. I'm preaching in the courtyard during coffee time and that story comes together because it's really what we do uh, when we're off camera. It, it is exactly that idea that that's where it really counts. And I could not help but think of that example uh, with that. 
with that horrible audition. <laughs> it's a perfect example. And it's a great pivot point for us. You eventually get another opportunity to read, you get the job, you grow in status and stature, you succeed for years. And then your father continues to progress with Alzheimer's. Would, would you talk about your father's challenges that he faced and when you realized it's time for you to step forward and step in? When he, um, the Louis family would gather, my father comes from uh, 13 siblings. And so you got 13 sibs and at our annual Christmas party is when uh, it was always a grand time right? A hundred people gathering and it's a potluck and it's just eat and jolly. We'd sing the Christmas carols, the whole nine yards. My dad one year couldn't remember his siblings' names. They grew up poor, like that sort of bring home one fish, lots of gravy, lots of rice for all 15 people, right? That kind of story. And when you can't remember your siblings' names, right? That, that says a lot. And so when my dad could no longer do that, we knew there was probably an issue. And so that that began him going to a neurologist, the neurologist said, your father has early indications. We I then knew that at certain point, looking at what the trajectory would be that I'd, I'd want to be there for him. It's either that or I could stay in New York, he's in California. But I, I knew I wanted to be there. Um, because it wasn't going to be easy. And also, you know, I love my dad, and, and my mom, and I want to be part of the solution. Didn't matter how many siblings, I have three siblings. Didn't matter how many lived in the Bay Area, I wanted to be part of it. Um, so I had to approach my boss, Yvette Miley, and tell her, you know, that I this is gonna happen. And I, and I was almost sure she would tell me, Richard, we like you a lot, it's not personal. But as you know, the way we've been sending you around the world to handle these breaking stories, we don't have, a job for you that is not an eight day a week job. Right. And instead she says, shock the heck out of me, John. She just looks up at me and you know, she's that stereotype of the tough editor, right? And she goes, Richard, um, I take care of my mom too long distance. She's in Florida. And so let's work together on finding a solution. And we, she came up with four. And she said, okay, we'll put it on the shelf. When you're ready to pull the trigger, you let me know. A year later, I pulled the trigger. For six years now, I've been traveling from New York to, to California two or three times a month, 10 hours door to door. And um, she was that idea of selfless. She, she thought of something to help me that made it more difficult for her. And I wrote in the book, so, you know, you know, got my copies. I'm just like three weeks ago, was writing a note to her, Dear Yvette. And you know, sometimes like when you're writing your notes in your books, you stop for a moment sometimes, sometimes it just flows right out the note you want to write. And it flowed right out. And it, it was a very, something I never said to her, but very, I think, um, direct. I wrote, thank you for changing my life. I, I wouldn't be writing this book yeah. or do a movie on care, young caregivers if it weren't for her saying, yes, let's come up with something. I got a note from her Saturday and she wrote to me, Richard, I'm sorry. I haven't been able to get back to your emails. My mother passed away. And I was like, oh, I wanted to just hug her. Um, because she is without, you know, those little things that we do 
really meant a lot to me. And now that she's lost her, her mother, um, and that her mother was what inspired her decision yeah. for me. And now this book and your journey is inspiring people around the nation and around the world to strive to do likewise in their own ways. You, you mentioned in the book several times that you quote the number, I believe it's 54 million individuals are affected. They uh, have an opportunity to take care of a family member who has some special needs, whatever those needs may be. I'm curious, would you, would you share a little bit about what your father's progression or regression, what his life has been like and what you've learned uh, as a caregiver along the way? Yeah, you know, the entire process has not been subtractive. It has been additive. It has been a one plus one equals three. And on the way in, I thought it was just going to be these sort of subtractions from his life and mine. And I look, he, as he, as he uh, has progressed, like he cannot eat or talk or walk anymore. And um, it's not easy. You know, there are, uh, there are some really difficult times and some tough decisions. And uh, what he has given us, meaning my, my siblings and, and my mother, is uh, certainly an understanding of what it means to care for other people hmm. um, and, and to work together at it. It's not easy. Like me and my siblings argue all the time. We don't agree on finances. We don't agree on care. We don't agree on all sorts of things. But I would definitely agree that we're closer and we're, we're stronger and better at caring. And, and there's been some holy Hannahs along the way. And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, we have family group text. And uh, we're all typical pastor's kids, by the way in that, you know, if there's one way to go, we went that other way. Uh, and so my brother, who was not known as the biggest church goer, no Bible, nor Bible reader, uh, like all of us at some point in our lives, um, he texts in the group thing. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm with dad right now. I'm visiting him. And I thought I'd read, I read chapter uh, one of John to him. And, uh, because he named his, his children after books of the Bible as well, my oldest brother. But outside of those two things, that was it for him. But when he texted that he wrote, that he read out loud, John chapter one, I looked over at my mom because I was at home at that. So I was like, did you, did you see that, that, that text? And, and sure enough, she's like, yeah, I don't know who, what son that is. <laughs> but uh, it worked out really well because, you know, when with Alzheimer's, you the only way you're brought back some is smell and audio. Mm. Vision doesn't work and taste. And so I knew why that would work because otherwise the way we, you would typically speak with somebody is like, how you doing, John? Yeah. How's your day, John? It's like this back and forth. Like that's what we're used to doing, right? And when you lose that mm. ability to talk, how do you get back in there and talk to them? So reading a book of the Bible, which my dad studied every day of his life um, brought back something that he really held close to his heart and his brain and the voice. He was able to hear our voices, which he knew for a longer period of time. And I got to tell you, I bet you my dad is laughing all the way to the bank. He got his children to read the Bible out loud and he got me to write a book called Enough About Me. <laughs> I bet he's laughing all the way. So enough about your dad. Let's talk about your mom for a moment. Mm. You and I were talking before we hit record about our mutual admiration for our parents. Yeah. 
and how in loving our fathers well, both of them struggling with their own diagnosis, that we also recognize the struggles that our mothers are under. Talk about the struggle of the caregiver. In this case, your mom. There's a chapter that I write about, um, which I allude to as the scream. And um, it's when you can give too much, unmitigated selflessness. And um, my mother, who is always a giver and strong as a you know tank, um, when it came to that fortitude and, and kindness, right? You, you would have to work hard to make her break her kindness. It's just tough. And um, I, we have cloud cameras in, in the house and my mom knows about them. And we, we say we put them in there in case the two of you fall. We want to be able to see what happened, how it happened, because you may not be around to see it. I heard her scream at my father and I, the scream was not only about frustration and anger, it was for help. It was for sadness. It was of angst. And when I heard that scream, I knew, because I spoke with my siblings after that, and I said, mom needs help now. This is too much. We knew she needed help and she wanted to, you know, we tried different things and we brought in part-time caregivers, but she would always say, "It's everything's okay. I got it. You, you do your thing. When I heard the scream, I knew she had given way too much. Mm-hmm. And we then moved into different options for her. And one, at some point we knew my father could not even be cared in the home, cared for in the home because she would still worry. Like it was, it was to a point, John, that we knew he couldn't be in the house. And if we had to move him into a care community because of the progression of his Alzheimer's, he would be fine with it, but it was hurting my mother more. Didn't matter who was there. She had to be in charge and be there for him. Right. When he, when he left, I saw the, what was drained from her Mm. after he left the, her lack of strength of mind, uh, of memory, of physical strength, She'd been operating on adrenaline for years and now it showed. Yeah. She, she just began her violin lessons again. And that's so important because I know that's part of her, not only her mental strength, but also the way that she rejoices what she, what she, what she does. Richard, I, I wish, honestly, man, I wish we had hours more to just slowly go through this conversation but I also recognize you have other places to be and interviews to host. So uh, just a couple of questions as we wrap up. You bet. For those we are caring for, what have you learned along this journey that would allow those of us who are doing the caretaking to do a far better job loving the ones well, who uh, are the one maybe laying in bed or unable to come up with our name or physically ill today or emotionally struggling today? How can we be better caretakers to those that we are serving? Oh boy. Um, get help and talk about it. Talk about it with people. Um, if it's so, for instance, for me, Alzheimer's, I can go to Alzheimer's association. Um, and I look for access and, and talking about it with you, this is, this is my therapy, right? And some of us don't like to talk about it a lot, but talk about it mm-hmm. and go and look for help. Um, that is, I think, the most important part of it. And if you want, write about it. Writing about it is so clarifying, and it's your time. Um, 
but be there overnight would be the other thing for those that you're care you're taking care of do the overnight um as you and i have been talking about the bumps in the night are more than bumps in the night and you'll really get you'll relearn what your parents are going through what your loved ones are going through so that's what we do as caregivers now for you know these individuals who are the caregivers your mother for instance uh, what can we do to do a far better job supporting them? So as you know, for instance, my family, I'm one of six and, and my mother is the one that carries the majority of the weight with her lovely husband, my, my dad, who I adore. What can we do as, as uh, the ones supporting the caregivers to do an even better job supporting them? The thing about it is, so for, for instance, my mother who was uh, giving too much was to um, figure out how to talk to her to find her community and because she, she didn't want to talk about it and so i would talk to her but she need it's to help them find community and that community allows them to express their their difficulty that's the most difficult is caregivers will start to give too much and you got it we got to open up the com communication spigot mm. Richard, final final question for you before you move on my friend is when individuals finish reading the book enough about me What's one thing that you hope they hear loud and clear and unmistakable, not so much about your father, your mother, or you, but about them in their own life? That there's something in the book that you can try in a bite-sized way. You know, we talk about this being um, uh, doing small things, bite-sized things. We make a conscious decision every 15 minutes. When might we consider uh, the selfless opportunity there? And that in in that way, um, we'll be ready for the big thing, whatever that is. I don't know what the big thing is. I mean, for me, it was taking care of my father, and um, that you would you will be able to jump to to do the thing that is going to potentially, you know, change your life. Uh, as I wrote in that thank you note to my boss. It's beautiful. Final question for our author, our friend, and a gentleman that I look up to named Richard Louis. Richard Louis, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Brother, how would you like your one sentence? <laughs> oh boy, you didn't tell me about this, John. <laughs> um, so breathe it in your earpiece right now. There's a, yeah. a plane crash in over. <laughs> um, one sentence, Richard Louis. He tried to do his little bit. Richard Louis, you did indeed try to do your little bit. And in doing so, you reminded the rest of us enough about me, enough about meism. My friends, that is Richard Louis. He is a great man. You can learn more about him, his father, his family, and what it means for you in the book, Enough About Me. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, why not tell the individuals that you work with or worship with or work out with that you hang out with on the weekends or in the evenings about the Live Inspired podcast? You can do that one-to-one -one or you can share it socially. And if you have not yet, hit that subscribe button. It's an awesome way to make sure that these episodes continue to show up in your device. Another thing, if you enjoyed hearing Richard's conversation, if you enjoyed learning about him and his role as a caregiver, let me encourage you to check out one of my favorite podcasts. It's with a phenomenal caregiver, 
It's with one of the most selfless, faithful, beautiful, brilliant individuals I've ever met. It's one of our most downloaded episodes, and maybe one of the reasons for that is it was our very first episode. Episode 00 is with one of my heroes. Her name is Susan O'Leary. That is my mother. She did a phenomenal job raising six kids, John O'Leary being one of them. But I think she is doing her finest work right now in her twilight years as she serves as not only not only the wife of my great dad, Denny O'Leary, but also his primary caregiver. It's a wonderful conversation that I had with my beautiful mom about four years ago, and there's a lot of value in it, not only in our journey today, but also to remind us of what is possible in our tomorrow. So check it out, episode 00 with my hero and yours, Susan O'Leary. So brothers and sisters, siblings, parents, friends, for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Live inspired. A word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.